Support for I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere comes from MX Publishing. With the largest catalog of new Sherlock Holmes books in the world, new novels, biographies, graphic novels, and short story collections about Sherlock Holmes. Find them at mxpublishing.com. And by the Wessex Press, the premier publisher of books about Sherlock Holmes and his world. Find them online at wessexpress.com. And from listeners like you, who support us through Patreon. Bonus material, thank you gifts, and more await at patreon.com slash I Hear of Sherlock. I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, episode 259, Sketches of Scions. I hear of Sherlock everywhere since you became a astrologer. In a world where it's always 1895, comes I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, a podcast for devotees of Mr. Sherlock Holmes, the world's first unofficial consulting detective. I've heard of you before. You're Holmes the meddler, Holmes the busybody, Holmes the Scotland Yard jacket officer. <laughs> The game's afoot as we discuss goings-on in the world of Sherlock Holmes enthusiasts, the bigger street irregulars, and popular culture related to the great detective. As we go to press, sensational developments have been reported. So join your hosts, Scott Monty and Burke Walder, as they talk about what's new in the world of Sherlock Holmes. You couldn't have come at a better time! Hello there, and welcome once again to I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, the first podcast for Sherlock Holmes devotees where it's always 1895. I'm Scott Monty. I'm Bert Walder. And Bert, you're looking a little sketchy tonight. <laughs> well, that's, uh, that's my signature look. In fact, it's not just any signature look, it's my key signature look. Ah, I see what you did there. I see what you did. Usually, usually you're off key, but uh, tonight, it's <laughs> true. You are you are positively harmonious. Ooh, excellent. Uh, we're going to have a great discussion today with Josh Harvey, who is a musician by training and a uh, Sherlockian by association. Uh, he's got a wonderful story to tell us. And uh, where, where, where the two interests intersect, I think, is what will be most fascinating for the audience here. And, of course, if you like the Granada Sherlock Holmes, the Jeremy Brett series, uh, then uh, you'll want to stay tuned for this because Josh has some really interesting background stories uh, for us about interacting with the composer from that series, something you don't want to miss. So buckle up and uh, get ready for that. In the meanwhile, I wanted to remind you that you can find the show notes for this episode at ihose.co slash ihose259, all lowercase, ihose.co slash ihose259. will bring you right to the I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere website. You know, you can sign up there for email updates so you don't miss when we have non-podcast posts. We do post things other than audio files there. Um, we have commentary. We have a uh, fortnightly series from uh, our pal uh, Steve Mason, Rusty Mason, and Joe Fay called Baker Street Elementary. It's kind of like peanuts 
for you Charlie Brown fans. Uh, peanuts for Sherlock Holmes. And uh, we have guest posts and whatnot. So book reviews, I mean, you name it. We have all kinds of offerings there on the website. So feel free to look us up there at IHearOfSherlock.com, where you find the show notes, and uh, subscribe to us there. And of course, as we mentioned in the intro, uh, we do look forward to your support on Patreon. We have thank you gifts at a variety of levels, and of course, uh, we do regular bonus material for our Patreon listeners, and we offer the shows ad-free for our Patreon supporters as well. Another great bonus of supporting I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere for as little as a dollar a month. Check it out and see what works for you. Josh Harvey began his professional accompanying career in church music at the age of 15, and he quickly began playing for musical theater productions from high school onwards. He received his degree in music theory and composition from Washington and Lee University in 2000 and became a lecturer, accompanist, and musical director for his alma mater's Department of Theater and Dance and Department of Music. He received his MA in the musical direction of musical theater from the Royal Conservatoire of Scotland in 2012. He's currently an instructor, music director, accompanist, and voice teacher at the Dobbins Conservatory of Theater and Dance at Southeast Missouri State University in Cape Girardeau, Missouri. He's played all over the world in churches, theaters, rock, jazz, choral, gospel, symphonic, and performance art settings for weddings, funerals, bar mitzvahs, and concerts, including events in London, Germany, Ireland, Northern Ireland, Scotland, Canada, Cuba, Costa Rica, Norway, Haiti, St. Croix, and Finland. Josh has presented at various Sherlockian events like 221 Beacon, Scintillation of Scions, and the DePaul Pop Culture Conference of 2022. Josh Harvey, welcome to I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere. Thanks for having me. So w with all of this uh, organ playing in your background, I have to ask you, I mean, this is, even before we get to the Sherlockian stuff, are you currently an organ donor? <laughs> I actually am, if, you, if, if I were to be in that situation. At least that's what my driver's license says. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> You know, back when I was at Boston University, uh, the chairman of the board of trustees was a little guy who looked like the Monopoly man, literally looked like the Monopoly man. And he lived in this huge mansion out west of the city, and he actually had an organ in his house. And, you know, he eventually moved off to greener pastures or, well, some kind of pasture and uh, dismantled his house and gave the organ to Boston University, uh, who then installed it in the student union for, you know, receptions and big things like that. And I joke that he was probably the largest organ donor that the university had ever known. <laughs> that's, that's actually very interesting. Um, when I was growing up, my dad is a Southern Baptist minister, and he was serving at a church in Virginia, and they wanted to get rid of their gigantic pipe organ and they put an advertisement in, you know, some sort of church music magazine. And, you know, nothing happened with it. No one called or anything for months. And then um, randomly the secretary picked up the phone and this booming voice on the other end, which would, you, you would do a better impersonation, Scott, than me because I'm clearly a tenor and not a bass. But he said, 
this is Mr. Shea. I would like to talk about your organ. And it was the, um, the great bass baritone um, singer for the Billy Graham crusade, George Beverly Shea. And he wanted to, um, he wanted to get the organ. And so my dad struck a deal with him because they just needed someone to clear it out. And what is going to cost more money, you know, to, to have it taken out um, than, you know, even just to, to trash it essentially. Um, and so he struck a deal with Mr. Shea that um, he would come and do a concert at the church in exchange for this, you know, gigantic pipe organ, which then he moved into um, his home in North Carolina. And I mean, he has since passed, but I, I'm, I'm sure it's still there. Um, additionally, he had a, 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 a pool that was shaped like a piano and you walked down the steps, which were partially the keys of the piano. So I guess, I guess being an organ donor in both directions could be lucrative. There you go. I like, I love that story. Well, um, you know, as much as I would love to find the connection between organs and literature, and really the only one coming to mind off the top of my head is Captain Nemo in 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. I know he had a, mm -hmm. he had a pipe organ installed in the Nautilus. Um, however, we, we want to talk about Sherlock Holmes. So, Josh, tell us, please, how you first got to know Sherlock Holmes. I think like many people um, approaching... 50 rather than 40. Um, my first encounter with um, Sherlock Holmes was the Granada series on, you know, in real time on PBS Mystery. And I have very clear memories um, of standing on a chair watching that on a really tiny black and white TV um, in my parents' home. And it must have stuck fairly early. I mean, that would have been 85, I guess, when I was seven. So somewhere around there. And about the same time, I have recently discovered in the past um, year or so a picture of myself from approximately that age um, when I had ventured from Virginia with my grandparents um, to visit my aunt and uncle in um, the San Francisco, L.A. area and um, in California. And um, there's an extant picture of me somewhere um, wearing a deerstalker. So that must have been all around the same time. Um, and the, the earliest introduction to the canon, um, and I think this is important because, you know, I feel like Sherlockiana is sort of constructed, you know, through the academic lens of hierarchy, which is partially influenced by the Catholic lens of hierarchy um, historically. And so, you know, Sherlockians always seem to have great sort of hagiographies of the great saints of Sherlockiana. Um, you know, and uh, as, a, as a Catholic, I, I like to think about the All Saints, all those other people that we don't hear about. And I had a babysitter at that time um, who was a remarkable woman um, named Dot Fuller. And she, um, I, she died close to her 90s um, in about 2021. Um, and she had a son who was remarkable of his own accord, um, whose name was Jim. And um, Jim developed muscular dystrophy as a child, um, you know, and was giving all sorts of terrible prognoses. And um, I actually was able to reconnect um, with him a couple of years ago and return his copy of the complete canon, um, which she had lent me. Um, he actually lived to be 65, um, lived a very long life. Um, but she had seen my interest and said, oh, you know, my son Jim is off to 
work, you know, living someplace else. I think he was living in Washington, D.C. Would you like to borrow this, you know, complete edition of the entire canon? And so I'm assuming that I, I mean, I had that until probably 20s, 2015, 2016. So for 30 years, I had that single copy and I was able to return it to him um, sometime um, I'm around then. So I, it's sort of something I've always been aware of. It's something I've always enjoyed. Um, that's something actually that um, my wife and I bonded over. Um, we um, actually had a, a club for her university, which I guess would could have been a little mini scion. Um, the Sherlock, um, the Sherlock Holmes Club of Buena Vista, Virginia, not Buena Vista, because that would be not Southern, but Buena Vista, <laughs> Virginia. And we used to just go and um, we watched all the Jeremy Bretts. We delved occasionally into the uh, A&E Nero Wolf series, which I also have always really liked. Um, and, you know, I found pictures recently of, of Christmas parties. I know that we would hand out uh, Barnes and Noble copies of the full canon as as door prizes, um, of course, BBC Sherlock um, and the Robert Downey Jr. Show, Sherlock. So, you, you know, I've I've slowly kept up with rereads of the canon, not as extensively, but I I I sort of feel like I've been immersed in the the renaissance of the the post, um, you know, Robert Downey Jr. and BBC Sherlock that has taken place for lots of people and. Um, so yeah, so I've just always sort of had Sherlock as part of my life, and just um, COVID actually let me explore a little deeper into the the world of Sherlockian meetings. Um, we were members of the Sherlock Holmes Society of Scotland when we when we lived there, and so um, I was able to work on that, and then um, work on a bunch of the stuff regarding Patrick Gowers that I had had sort of started back when I was living there. Um, and so now I'm, I'm sort of, you know, casing the, casing the joint a bit, you know, creeping around meetings over Zoom um, and conferences and things like that, and, and really having a good time connecting with other um, Sherlockians. Yeah. So, I mean, all of that is uh, just fascinating, and uh, there's, there's a lot to explore there. So, but I, I'm going to back up a little bit and talk about your, we, we just talked about your beginnings with Sherlock Holmes, but let's now talk about your beginnings with music, uh, either as, uh, you know, a, a listener, consumer of music versus uh, an actual musician yourself. Talk to us a little bit about that. Sure. So I've, um, like, uh, I guess many elementary school, middle schoolers, um, started out uh, playing the tuba, which is very humorous for people that meet me because I'm barely five foot six. And, um, you know, marching in Christmas parades and such, um, my dad actually had to carry that sousaphone around for me and um, when it was time to play, I would put it on and play and then take it back off and then he would he would put it back on. So um, that was my first. Um, and then I got into the piano, I would say relatively late for someone um, who is, I guess, a professional piano player at this point. Um, it was about the sixth grade and um, growing up in a small rural town in Virginia, and my parents said, you know, would you like to play the piano? And there wasn't any valid reason not to. Um, and so I took to that, and 
I guess just by a trick of the brain, um, I was able to read music very quickly. Um, and so that has sort of been my career, and that's what sort of kept me into musical theater because you're basically a professional sight reader in musical theater, and that's what I do um, all day long, every day, is basically sight read uh, for music, uh, for musical theater classes, for students singing, uh, working in class, that sort of thing. And so um, I moved into church music um, at the age of 15, which also really, you know, A, gave me a little bit of actual pocket money um, as a 15-year-old and um, gave me a place to play, you know, and learn music quickly and have to, you know, keep a bunch of different songs um, in my brain uh, for the next couple of Sundays at a time. And then I would occasionally uh, play preludes or, you know, postludes or offertory sorts of meditation music. Um, and that's something I still do. Um, I'm basically going to hit 30 years um, this fall, I believe, of playing in churches and doing church music. So it's sort of a, just a, a continually rolling uh, group of musics that I'm responsible for in all the facets of my life. Um, and having those sorts of skills, I've been really fortunate to work for various choirs, universities, um, which allows me to encounter lots of other cultures. I've lived in other countries. I've, uh, you know, uh, you heard uh, in my bio, I've, I've, I've played in a lot of different places, a lot of different uh, countries, so I've therefore consumed a lot of different musical material um, culturally. And, you know, and then in high school, I was also in college, I was sort of in jazz bands and things like that. Started playing in, in you know, small cafes with, with small jazz uh, groups and things like that. So it's a pretty wide experience. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of a, a jack of all trades, master of none. But then I have to remind people that it's, it's better to be that than you know only a master of one. <laughs> well, but you're being you're being very uh, self-deprecating there because I note you mentioned earlier about being in Scotland, and I know from your bio that you have a master's in the musical direction of musical theater from the Royal Conservatoire of Scotland. Tell me, what was that experience like? And how, and how of all the places in the world to be, you wound up being in Scotland? Um, well, I think, there, I think there's, a, a, there's a time in every boy's life at the age of 33 <laughs> when they're unmarried and, you know, just kind of still hanging out uh, being a batch, doing different gigs. Um, I just think at some point I decided that I probably needed to get a piece of paper in order to sort of do what uh, I had um, met my wife. I mean, essentially my wife and I got married and 10 days later um, moved to Scotland. Um, and when I was looking for grad school, actually what had happened was I was reading a textbook for the education of musical theater students and it was trying to find the information of the, the, the two men that were the authors. And for whatever reason, in the Google search, up popped this um, program for the musical direction of musical theater. Um, and time was basically the only program. Now, there are other programs now 
undergrad and post-undergrad programs that have a similar um, degree path. But at the time, it was sort of a, a really new educational track, and that was the only place in the world um, that had a, a master's degree. I had been to Scotland. I did study abroad in London um, in the sophomore year of college, and I never made it to Scotland during that trip, but I'd um, spent a summer with my family. Um, my dad did a pulpit exchange, you know, didn't preach your family, got to move to this little tiny place in the middle of nowhere in, in Virginia, essentially. But um, during that trip, we were able to go to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival and do a little exploration of Edinburgh. And so I had a little bit of familiarity um, with Scotland as a country, um, and as well of um, I was familiar with the music of a man named John Bell, who was a, a big church musician um, and has written some pretty famous hymns that people sing in church in all denominations at this point. And um, I had met him, oh man, even maybe eight or ten years prior to moving to Scotland at a conference. And, you know, I had just chatted with him at, over lunch or whatever and um, had gotten his information and... When the time came, I had just written him and said, you know, we met at this place. Would you have any insight into, you know, where to live? And he said, yes, you can come live with me in my flat. And so my wife and I moved into the, the flat of John Bell, the composer of the Iona Kitty. And um, my piano teacher has a pretty strong relationship with the Iona community, visiting the island of Iona in the Hebrides, um, which is, you know, sort of a ecumenical pilgrimage center for the world. So I was had several sort of connections to the that part of the world. And so, you know, and of course, who wouldn't want to move to Scotland to go to grad school? Um, and um, I'd even prior to that served um, as a university chaperone for a theater department that took a show to the fringe. So I felt like it was a, another, I still feel like it's another home. Um, I haven't been back since we graduated, um, or since I graduated from that program. But um, yeah, it's, it's a wonderful experience. It's a lot of work. It's you know twelve-hour days, six, seven days a week, um, putting on musicals. But it's a, it's a really cool um, thing to say that my master's thesis was conducting Stephen Sondheim's company at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival festival every day for that entire month of uh, <laughs> July to August, you know, 2012. So not many people get to say something like that. So it was a lot of fun projects. I had really great classmates who have all done pretty remarkable things. Um, and yeah, so I mean, Glasgow is a great city for the arts too. So it's a cool, it was a cool place to be. Yeah. Well, that's amazing. Have you, so what's your thinking about the musicals of Sherlock Holmes about Baker Street and the various musicals that, uh, you know, folks have put on over the years with, with I think it's, it's safe to say, limited success. Yes. And I, you know, I don't want to take away from this conversation. I had a very similar conversation with um, Madeline and Dixie of the Dynamics of a Podcast. Um, I, I think I have a theory, and the theory is it's sort of the same reason that superhero musicals don't work. And it's essentially because... I feel like in a musical, you know, if you're watching a Marvel movie and you're waiting for Bruce Banner to Hulk out, it's usually due to some sort of emotional stress or emotional outpouring. Um, and that sort of takes the place of the power 
Um, and when a musical, you know, a character in a musical sings, it's sort of in the same place. And I, you know, I consider Sherlock Holmes to be a sort of prototype superhero of a of an intellectual sort. And so I think in, you know, I haven't seen a, a, a musical that I think works as well as others. I mean, the only mus- the only superhero musicals that have ever really worked for me are Matilda, um, and I think it works because you know she's a child, and it's um, there's something appealing to audiences about that, and it's it's a sort of pseudo pseudo positive revenge plot as well with children, and that's that's always gratifying to to audiences. Um, and then the Toxic Avenger because it's basically a parody of itself, and it knows that musicals about superheroes don't ever really work. Um, and also, you know, I, I'm I'm not sure if anyone has cracked the code of really if Sherlock Holmes needs to be a Henry Higgins sort of character <laughs> and not really sing and just sort of talk sing, but it just never I know oh, clearly we know he's a musical person, but even in the canon it feels like the point where maybe, you know, Conan Doyle estate lawsuits about his emotions aside that when he ex- needs to vent himself that he p- plays the violin so i i'm i have an idea for a musical regarding the sherlock holmes universe but i don't think you could really see sherlock holmes until kind of the last you know the maybe the deus ex machina moment or sort of like you see him in in the great mouse detective just shadows you know he would be the fiddler but I guess not the fiddler on the roof, but the fiddler in two two one B sitting room. <laughs> but I'm not sure he can be a character for it to. I, I don't know. That's just my feeling about how why because I, I know people are gonna. There's gonna be even more of them coming out. We all know know that with the copyright being up. So I just don't. I I think that's why they don't generally work for me. Well, I I think that's a, a fascinating analysis, Josh. I mean. Music is fundamentally emotional. It uh, touches us not only through our ears, but through our hearts. And Sherlock Holmes, being a very logical individual, separated from emotion, it, it would make logical sense that he wouldn't necessarily be as closely tied to music, at least as an expressive uh, type of pursuit. Um, and yet, and yet, I think in many if not all of the major uh, Sherlock Holmes productions on television and film, music is a very important element, soundtracks and scores and whatnot. And you mentioned uh, previously there about uh, Patrick Gowers, who of course was the uh, composer behind the Granada series. And you sent along a, a, a handful of photos that we have for our Patreon Supporters, We're going to post those photos in our Patreon entry um, so folks can see you. You were actually in the Gowers flat in 2012. T- talk to us a little bit about that. How did that come about? Um, I don't want to say sure dumb luck, but almost sure dumb luck. Um, I have always been a fan of that score. Prior to moving to Scotland, I had... Um, at some point rediscovered, you know, the CD, I think. Um, it's only recently just come back to 
streaming. I think it just came back to Spotify in the past six to eight months. In fact, I wasn't even aware that it was on Spotify until someone had told me. Um, when I was in Scotland, you kind of have to do these sorts of day internships or internships sort of shadowing people on the West End. Um, you know, they to try to get you into London and to do sort of um, just observational work. And I just really took a chance in writing his son, who I thought he was the easiest person to find, was his son, who is Sir Timothy Gowers. He's knighted for his work in mathematics. And um, I found his academic email address and said, I'm very interested in meeting your father. And, you know, I have a little bit of time and money from my school to have a quote-unquote internship. It has to be music-related, doesn't have theater-related. sounds right as the same similar sort of overlap. And um, he very graciously wrote me back and said, here's my mom's email address and work this out. And so in February of 2012, I took the train down and um, met Caroline Gowers, Patrick's wife, and she took me. Um, he had a stroke, a severe stroke in the um, early 2000s, which actually damaged um, a significant part of um, you know, the hemisphere that uh, allows creativity. So as he got mm. older, post-stroke, he was able to do higher and higher levels of you know, calculus, <laughs> experimental math, but he was physically, from a neuroscientific perspective, unable to create, to compose. Um, but he could still hear, listen to his own music and talk about it and, you know, analyze it and have discussions about it. He, anything that was pre-existent, he could analyze that would be math, but to come up with it from scratch rough the, the the capability um, and so I was able to meet with him um, and talk to him for a short period of time and he's in assisted living he was he was um, pretty much homebound uh, bed bound and after that I was I, I talked to Carolyn and I was like you know I'd really you know like to help out with some work maybe just try to get some filing some archiving um, and she took me um, to her flat and opened up a closet and um, not only was the Granada series there, but other work like he, the soundtrack for, um, Alec Guinness, um, in the Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, um, TV series, Smiley oh, sure. People. Yeah. He, he had yeah, he had written that soundtrack as well. And, you know, said, this bigger project, then, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a student, I'm going to be kicked out of the country by the end of this year. Um, but I would love to listen. And so... Once my program was done in June, um, I went down there, and then my wife joined me. She needed to graduate from the program that she was in um, about a week later, and we lived in their flat. We stayed uh, up in the attic room, and we literally just started pulling scores out. A lot of the material, like the old orchestra parts, things like that, had already been removed, you know, um, but all the basic stuff, the big full orchestra scores were all still extant and they were just sort of in a hodgepodge. And, uh, we spent a couple of days. I mean, we also had a good time in London for the couple of weeks that we were there, but, um, 
basically would we would sort of work in the morning and then go out in the afternoon and we were basically just pulling all these sheets of paper and making sure we could find you know putting them in order i mean literally just kind of taking the sound cues um finding them by episodes and them back into sort of episode order making sure the pages were in order um and then we took them to a place in western london out i think around zone six um which happened and everyone was confident about that we were a little bit nervous about getting these you know taking these things outside of the flat um because that was it i mean that those those handwritten copies were the only thing that were you know that still you know uh was left at that time and so um we found again this is 2012 it's not you can't just put all these things into a copy machine like you can now and scan them um we had to take them to a bulk scanning place and we're talking um i think i remember now but it was close to 1500 to 2000 pages of orchestra scores because there's wow. obviously you all know there's a lot of music in those granada series and these are the full these were the full um orchestra uh, conductor scores, and there's only about five five measures per page on some of them, and so there's a lot of stuff. And once we found out that the bulk scanning place was also responsible for the archiving of the music for the BBC Orchestra, then everyone felt way more at home, comfortable with taking these documents out. And I remember them out basically in a big suitcase strapped to like a rolling dolly because it was so heavy. And we took a, ca- we, we took a cab out cause obviously I didn't want to drag all that out on the tube. Um, and within a couple of days they handed us a CD ROM and said, here it all is. And so now at least it's preserved digitally and um, it's not really freely available. Um, it's unclear to me exactly how much I can make available and it, you know, when and how, and so I just sort of um, have been holding on to it for almost a decade until COVID, at which time I was more able to be at home. Um, and essentially, I went through every Granada episode with the scores. I found places where things were missing, like things had disappeared. Um, there were a couple of tracks that I knew he had taken and given as gifts. You know, he had taken sound cue ever and as a gift and so then i spent a little bit of my own you know sherlockian time finding a woman example who had um one of the only handwritten piano versions of a couple of things that he did as an arrangement as a gift to her she originally lived in japan and when he went to japan um with his wife who was a, a suzuki piano uh method teacher um, he had he had basically handed her as a young person, as a as a teen, as a as a child or a teenager, um, this handwritten version of a sound cue. She's the only person in the world that had it. And after a bunch of research on the internet for a couple of weeks, I was able to track her down over um, Facebook in London, and she was able to send me scans of something like that. Um, but I basically just went show by show, cue by cue, and was just sort of looking at how he uses that opening melody, that sort of iconic opening melody in different ways throughout 
the entire soundtrack, which is, you know, the the next stage for me will be doing that all over again because once wasn't enough and how many times <laughs> there's never enough Granada viewing. Um, and I just got to figure out what to do with all this information. But I, I got through all of those episodes over the pandemic um, and just sort of have this big bulk of information just sitting in my computer. Wow. Uh, well, that's fascinating. You know, as a, a major Granada fan myself and as someone who dabbles in music, certainly appreciates music, and I've listened to the uh, the Gowers soundtrack, I can't even count how many times. Used to have it on cassette tape. Now I've got it on CD, I've, and it's on Spotify again with, by the way, on Spotify with some horrible spelling mistakes in some of the tracks. Um which is amusing. So go go uh, look that up, folks, and uh, check that out. But um, my goodness, I mean, what a treasure trove, Josh. And and this idea of uh, you know kind of a major theme and creating variations on that theme. I think Gowers did a phenomenal job uh, adapting the theme to the various settings. You know, a very English pastoral kind of uh, version in the Musgrave ritual, for example. Um, a uh, kind of an American slash slightly Irish lilting theme with Elsie Cubitt and uh, and the Patrick family from uh, the Dancing Men, uh, the absolute bonkers uh, version of it in The Devil's Foot, which uh, you of course hear as part of our theme song here. Um, it's just fascinating to see how he reworked that main theme for each successive episode or story. Yeah, and I you know what's really fascinating too. I mean, b- people are becoming more in, uh, you know, more interested in Gowers. I think a little bit since he passed several years ago, but also, you know, due to programs like yours, um due to our friends Gus and Luke at the Jeremy Brett Sherlock Holmes podcast, um there's a a lot of people are sort of rediscovering him, but also there's always been this sort of hidden fandom of his that once I started getting into this, you know, I've got friends that conduct soundtracks and write soundtracks for Netflix. They're all Gowers fans. Um, I've got another Facebook friend who I met through a, a conversation that kind of can part of a subject. And, he, you know, he works for the Kurt Vile estate working on orchestrations and managing the orchestrations for the Kurt Vile estate. And he's You know, he was giddy. He said, I've always wanted to see the orchestration of this one moment in the opening of The Hound of the Baskerville. I'll send it to you. And I just sent it to him. And it was like, he's like, I've been waiting my whole life (laughs) to see how he did this, how he voiced the chords. And now I have a little bit of access. I mean, the other really fascinating thing about the soundtrack, which I just... Um, I actually do have some photocopies of the handwritten, what he called the Sherlock Holmes suite, which is licensable, that orchestras can can license and perform, um, which is mostly the soundtrack, but some other things that if the soundtrack album had maybe been a little bit longer, you know, maybe if it had been on streaming instead of LP, that he would have included. What kinds of cues are those? Um... I'm trying to remember. It's it's there's just some of the extra, you know, they're just extra cues from the show. I I I I haven't looked at the suite specifically, but it's basically the soundtrack in order, 
plus a couple of some of the what what I think you're recognizing, um, Scott. You know, some of those m- super iconic places where maybe the opening of the show was a little bit different, um, or in- extra instruments are being used, um, and you know, he rewrote the soundtrack. He rewrote the the sound cues. For example, that Elsie Cubit cue that you were mentioning, which I agree 100% uh, with your musicological analysis. It's a sort of a, almost a pastiche of the Dvorak uh, Symphony for the New World, like the Largo. Um, it got some Irish lilt to it, and, and, and most definitely um, having Elsie Cubit's American background being represented. What, what is played on the soundtrack that we stream does not exist in the show. It's basically just that opening theme repeated, and then it stops. And, you know, he, he took compositional care to extend that for the soundtrack, to expand it for bigger orchestra than the one they were using for recording the soundtrack. Um, and part of the great fun of the soundtrack is that he purposely hid, we think, some of those motivic additions into every single track on the soundtrack so that the listener could go on their own Sherlockian journey of trying to find the opening motive in every single track. And I think I've, I think I have done, I think I have found all of them, but I know that he specifically rewrote it in that Elsie Cubit track. He added the opening theme. It's hidden and I know that because he tested me on it when I first met him, and I failed the test. <laughs> well, it's uh, certainly a mystery for our listeners to explore. Um, we're going to take a quick break here, uh, and then we're, gonna, we're going to come back and explore more with Josh Harvey and his sketches of science. Stay with us. What was Conan Doyle really like? Thanks to American journalists, now we know. And you can know, too, when you get your copy of Sherlock Holmes and Conan Doyle in the Newspapers, Volume 6, just published in January. Volume 6 covers the first month of Conan Doyle's tour of the United States in October 1894. Just four weeks but it produced 230 pages of articles, interviews, reports from his lectures, and much more. And because of American interviewers, it's the first time we get really close to Conan Doyle the man. They tell us what he looks like, his way of moving and talking, and all those little things that form a three-dimensional image of the creator of Sherlock Holmes. Get your copy of Sherlock Holmes and Conan Doyle in the newspapers, Volume 6, Edited and annotated by Matthias Bostrom and Mark Alperstadt at wessexpress.com today. Okay, well, we just talked about uh, Patrick Gowers and Granada. I mean, we could probably do a, an entire episode just on 
Gowers and uh, sampling some of that. But I, Josh, am, am much more interested in sampling your own music um, because you've, you've gone on a journey here and, and we have a number of playlists of uh, your, your complete and growing set of what you call Sketches of Scions. Tell us a little bit about the um, origins of this project, how it came about, and um, we're going we're gonna to queue up some music for folks to uh, listen to here in a bit. Well, I, it, was, it sort of happened by accident. I think as you know, any person is trying to fit into any group like Sherlockiana, for example, you're trying to find your place, and there's obviously such a very strong tradition of music amongst Sherlockians, um, you know, Currently, we have Karen Wilson and Alex Catt, um, Jim Ballinger, Karen Gold, but, you know, Harvey Boot, um, and going back in the history, people like Harvey Officer. Um, you know, I think you're just looking for a place to do what you do. And, you know, I, I'm an academic. I can write papers. I, I love doing presentations. It's literally my job when I teach classes. But also, you know, you're trying to find maybe a little bit of a vacuum that hasn't happened before or someone hasn't. Um, done before, and I, when the Legion of Zoom started by Steve Mason and, um, you know, sort of escalating over the pandemic, um, once they decided they were going to have their first sitting room, um, I sort of just came up with an idea in my brain of what that would sound like, what that would be, worked on it and said, here, you know, conferences have, you know, music before them, Um, would you be interested in this and the original trio the board um, listened to it and said yeah that's really cool we'll use that and I thought okay that's you know that's cool that was fun that was a good project and then um, why don't we uh, why don't we give that a listen so people understand what we're talking about this is a theme from the legion of zoom a lot of fun josh um take us take take that apart a little bit i mean you know when you listen to great scores and you listen to great film music as an example you know there as you pointed out earlier when we were you were talking about sherlock holmes musicals you know there are great emotional moments in these films that you know get linked to motifs and get explored and so on and so forth so when you but when you're putting this together for something like the legion of zoom you know what was going through your mind how did how did uh, how did those themes add up to uh, how did you get to where you got i guess that's what i'm asking um so for me very often because i have done a lot of improvisation 
Um, sometimes it starts improvisationally. Um, for this, I think it's pretty... I mean, I, I think I had a fairly clear idea that, you know, slightly tongue-in-cheek for the idea of the Legion of Zoom um, being a riff on, you know, the DC Comics Legion of Doom and the idea of Saturday morning cartoons and Saturday morning cartoon soundtracks. That was sort of my first um, idea of what it was going to be. And, you know, I like to put clues in my music, too. And, you know, the very first bells at the top are the exact pitches of when someone enters a Zoom meeting. Um, and so I just sort of used the, the, the idea of the, the, the pitches at the beginning of the Zoom meeting um, when people entered, which we have all heard, and I had heard literally teaching all of my classes for almost a year and a half um, during the pandemic. Um, and then just trying to have fun with the idea of that Saturday morning cartoon. I mean, I'm using a digital audio um, you know, program, so none of the instruments are real. So you're sort of hindered um, with the limitations of what you can, you know, the fun and the challenge is what you can make sound real um, and what can feel successful, um, in that space of computer, you know, computer guided music, essentially when you're composing. Um, but I just sort of improvisationally go through things and then I think, oh, maybe it would be great to have a French horn. French horn always sounds good in a computer sample. We'll put a French horn line, big Hans Zimmer, like trombone blats sound really good on a computer. Um, you know, certain string things, you know, things that don't sound good on computers are usually upper woodwinds and brass. Um, so compositionally, I'm a little bit limited um, in that way, but that's part of the fun also. It's to try to find um, something that sounds cool and it's got the vibe that you want. I mean, I generally, for all of these sketches, sort of gave myself the parameters of place, um, space, and page. Um, and so the place, you know, as we talk, start talking about the other scions, I mean, the, the, the actual location, like what city is this in? Um, place for me is a little bit more like the mood, the vibe, maybe, of that locale or, or a, a sense impression that I have of that, those things, you know. Um, and then, of course, the page, there's canon references and when the scions are named with canon reference, references, I try to go back and read them and maybe bring something of the 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 story into that little sketch. And they really are, you know, sketches. They're not. So I'm I'm not considering these like full compositions. I really do think of these as, you know, plain air paintings um, that are taking place quickly. And by quickly, I mean four or five hours. I mean to to put something together and then mixing it down a little bit usually takes about an hour. Um, and they're not supposed to be, you know, for me, I, I, I'm a, I, I feel like there should be 12 step meetings for perfectionists and I've post perfectionist period of my life where I'm, I'm just having a good time. And, you know, occasionally if something doesn't quite sound the way, um, I want it to, or I can't get it quite right. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm just learning the program better. So, you know, in certain ways, um, some of the later sketches maybe sound a little better than the first ones, but I, I really like the human element. Um, my Virginia acquaintance is a, the photographer, um, Sally Mann, and she very often picks pictures where you can see, you know, a scratch on the side of the lens or, you know, something in the, uh, in the chemicals that didn't quite 
go right while the picture was being developed. So she purposely puts, you know, or allows imperfections. And, you know, I'm not doing this for a, a paid gig. It's not a movie soundtrack or a TV soundtrack, which would be an entirely different situation of trying to keep things, you know, super clean, super mixed well, per perfect. These really are sketches. Well, and I think that idea, that notion of imperfection, that's important because even in the canon itself, we find that Sherlock Holmes was less than perfect. You know, as, as often as we see uh, his successes, well, we quite frequently see that he had some failures or he uh, messed up along the way. So it's, uh, I think, injecting this human element that we can all uh, relate to. So let's uh, take you up on uh, some of uh, your uh, enumerations here. You talked about place, space, and page. Let's uh, use place as uh, the jumping off point for this next sketch as we land in our nation's capital for this sketch from the Red Circle of Washington, D.C. detected a little bit of uh, when Johnny comes marching home injected in there was that would that be accurate I mean I definitely think that any sort of um, Washington DC has to have a little bit of colonial slash um, you know John Philip Sousa as a as a reference to that that I mean for for that I really was thinking you know what what would it sound like? And honestly, Patrick Gowers did a good job with this because anytime the mafia is used in the Granada series, he, he he has a very he uses the same first three notes. So, like in the Six Napoleons, that theme is related to the to like the Red Circle. Um, they're not quite the same music, but they're in the same key, and they open with the first same three notes. Um, so, I would definitely think trying to think a little bit of. You know what would if, if there's a if there's a mafia John Philip Sousa overlay hybrid. So it's kind of a, a Sousa esque marching band with a little bit of mandolin in there, like an Italian, um, you know, mandolin. I mean, early on, one of the things that became very apparent the the first series has a certain the first volume has a certain purity, but I realized really quickly I couldn't just write. If, if I even made it through all the scions, I couldn't just write different versions of an opening to a PBS mystery. 
soundtrack. I had to think of other ways to include other styles of music. I mean, for my own sake, you know, as well as listeners. Um, because I think pushing the idea, you know, the the Robert Downey Jr., Hans Zimmer soundtrack has pushed the idea of what Holmes should quote-unquote sound like a little bit differently. And, of course, BBC Sherlock has a totally different take. Um, and so, you know, several things have come up. You know, does something sound like Sherlock Holmes enough or not? And I, I don't know what the answer to that... It's like we all sort of inherently know the answer to that question. Even my kids do when I play. I, they're long-suffering listening to some of these. You know, they might say, that doesn't feel like a mystery. And I'm like, but what does that mean? Is it in a minor key? Does it have to have a certain vibe? Does it have to feel foreboding? Does it have to feel like someone's searching for something? Um, but I realized that if I compositionally limited myself to what essentially would be like the opening of any mystery, and there are great ones out there. I love the Magpie Murders that just came out. Um, it's sort of a mystery, the, the new Netflix series Lockwood & Co., it's got a, 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 a completely slamming opening. Um, the BBC Sherlock is iconic. Granada's iconic. Um, I don't really feel like that's what these are completely, but I also just was very ca cautious and aware after the first volume that they were all going to sort of sound the same because it's the same person writing them if I didn't further afield into other genres of music. So yeah. the Red Circle, that, that, that fits to me, um, a sort of John Philip Sousa uh, mafia overlay. Yeah, it's an, kind of an interesting uh, American-slash-Mediterranean, you know, March uh, versus uh, Martia, uh, as it were, in Italian. So, um, well, let's, I'll tell you what, let's stay in the Mediterranean. And this, I think, uh, just underlines your point that you were making there about exploring different styles. This is the sketch you wrote for the Greek interpreters of Lansing. And we're going to hear, I think, far more about the Greek accent rather than the Lansing accent, because I don't think many people know much about <laughs> Lansing, let's face it. But when you do hear Greek music, it becomes very apparent. Fortunately, over here, uh, the microphone was muted because the smoke detector went off because of my Saganaki, 
I had to fire up uh, to go with that uh, <laughs> that theme. Saganaki and uh, Suvlaki. Opa. Um, so that that was a lot of fun, and uh, you know, kind of nodding toward what you were mentioning there before, Josh, about uh, what sounds like a mystery, what sounds mysterious, what sounds foreboding. I think you've uh, done a really good job in capturing those elements in this next track, which is uh, for The Sound of the Baskervilles, which is, uh, I think, from a group out in uh, Seattle uh, from the Puget Sound. Uh, This is a sketch for The Sound of the Baskervilles. something um, foreboding uh, and kind of echoing the depths of uh, the nearby coast. Um, it, it just it really has a nice feel to it from, from my perspective. Oh, thank you. Well, I mean, the, the, the general concept, you know, and again, trying to get maybe place or space and page together, my general idea was what is a version of Hound of the Baskervilles? Um, how does that align to... <laughs> you know, the Puget Sound, and, uh, you know, the easy answer is fog. And so I was definitely trying to think about fog and, you know, the moors and uh, the fog on the Puget Sound. Um, So, you know, uh, on the other hand, what I want to say also, these are just my impressions, right? I mean, you know, I wanted to put a little La Mer, you know, like Debussy's La Mer feeling in there for the ocean. Um, these are not anticipated to be accepted by all the scions. They're just, you know, quick little homages. Um, some of the, some of them have been adopted semi-officially. The Legion of Zoom, of course, um, Peter Blau being a person that I've always, um, assumed he was, was very complimentary about the Red Circle one. Other, other groups I have had, you know, no response, which is a hundred percent okay, um, I did want to go back just for a second, though, too, about the Greek interpreter, um, because it's a joint 
it's a joint song. It's not only the Lansing um, Greek interpreters, it's also for Athens, Alabama. Um, it's one of the few science um, names that has been utilized by two different groups of people and two different parts of the United States. And, you know, I was really happy with that one because with the Greek interpreter being, um, you know, a very clear introduction to Mycroft as the brother, you know, I really was thinking about these sort of two brotherly sibling paired scions in uh, both with the name Greek interpreter, which is why there's sort of the Greek theme at the beginning and in the middle, it sort of goes more into like a bluegrass feeling um, for Alabama. I'm from Appalachia. I grew up um, listening to bluegrass and having bluegrass at, you know, going to parties where live bluegrass bands were playing. So I have a huge fondness for, for bluegrass music. Um, and by sheer dumb luck, as I was going through, I realized that both of those melodies with a little adjustment could be played at the same time. So you sort of have this sort of idea of from the page, the two brothers and the two brothers, you know, showing off their intellect um, in the Diogenes Club, but also you have these two two brothers um, of scions and that their musics actually fit together at the end, you know, that last sort of refrain in the music, if you will. That's really interesting. I like that. And thank you for pointing that out um we got one last track that i'd like to play and i think this is the most recent in your playlist uh that we have uh and this is uh from nashville i guess it's is it the um i forget the name of their group the Nash- yes the scholars of the three pipe problem that's it the scholars of the three pipe problem of nashville you want to you want to set this one up for us? Um, I think you can hear everything in the title of the Scion. That's my hope, and then we can maybe talk about it after okay. that. That's great. Here we go.
<laughs> that was a lot of fun. Fill us in on this one, Josh. Right. So um, I'm not too far from Nashville. Obviously, that's a, a, a sort of country music city homage. Um, I once probably, oh man, about 20 years ago, um, played at the Sundance Film Festival. And the band that played after the band I was playing in um, was this, un, at the time, slightly unknown band called Nickel Creek. And I spent about an hour over the hors d'oeuvres talking with this young, brilliant mandolin player, uh, Chris Thiele, um, about Bach and Wagner counterpoint. And he's the real deal. And of course, now he's a MacArthur Genius <laughs> Fellowship winner, you know, took over Garrison Keillor's program uh, before the pandemic killed it, you know, as one of the greatest mandolin players alive. So I, I was definitely thinking about some of his tunes um, and how he writes stuff. Um, but also, because I wanted to sort of be self-referential, you know, to itself a little bit, it's a little bit recursive, I actually wrote what would be considered the final third as the, the tune and was sitting, you know, and, and as these have gotten more, um, you know, self-conscious, I've actually, instead of just improvising parts, I'm like starting to write scores out and, you know, actually compose them for, for certain ones. And this was one, and I was sitting there staring at the comp, the, 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 what again now is the, the final third going, Okay, that's the solution to the problem. How do I represent in music him figuring out over two other pipes, <laughs> you know, um, the solution? And so when you hear the, the, the match go at the beginning, um, I basically took the melody, the completed melody, and literally took scissors and tape and copied and, you know, t cut it up and pasted it all up and put it on the floor and try to make it make musical sense with a couple of iterations here and there, you know, changes for, for, for better composition, I guess. And, um, so I, I'm really proud of that one because, you know, knowing that I know that's what I did. Um, I really like, firstly, I wanted to create a melody that felt like he was figuring out a problem. Um, and then I also, um, figured out a way to represent each of the pipes as he was figuring out the problem. So the, the first pipe is part of the melody, but it's all sort of jumbled. And the second pipe, you know, um, it's sort of a little bit more unfolding, a little bit more advanced. And then the third pipe, you sort of get the third pipe and you get that sort of what feels like a bridge. It's sort of slightly newer material. Um, it feels like it's ascending a little bit and it's like the aha moment. And then it's like he spills out the full melody um, at the end. So it was sort of a, and it was my attempt, because I think like the soundtrack to Elementary, for example, that opening does a really good job of giving us the vibe of Sherlock Holmes trying to figure out a problem. It's a little bit mechanical, right? They've got that sort of Rube Goldberg mousetrap imagery going over. And I, I wanted to do something similar, but it also had to be bluegrass because it's for Nashville. Yeah, it, it, it really worked. And uh, that explanation, I think, really kind of brings it all home. Uh, well, this is a lot of fun, Josh. And I suppose the, the closing question here is obvious. Can science societies commission you to uh, do a, a custom number for theirs? Or are you just simply going to be dabbling in this to your heart's content for the foreseeable future? Um, both 
and and by commission i mean just give me some more guidance to what they would um be interested in in fact uh monica schmidt um sort of we did that process for the younger stanford's one we had a, a good conversation about things that wanted to be highlight highlighted um the brass tradition of the midwest um the founder of that scion if i'm remembering correctly was a piano player we wanted to feel like sort of ragtimey old music that could be music hall from the Sherlock Holmes time period, but the American analog, of course, was ragtime. And, um, you know, they seem very happy with that. So, yes, it's more just, I actually prefer that because I think, you know, having a little bit of input um, and conversation means I can get to the heart of the, the scions. And many of them I've not been able to attend. Either they don't have Zoom meetings or they're too far away. Um, the first the first volume is essentially the ones that I attend regularly, and I feel like I have a better sense of connection to them as opposed to going blind. So absolutely, if anyone wants to contact me, that's totally, that'd be a fun project. That is fantastic. Well, we will put your contact information in the show notes, and uh, we thank you for sharing your musical and Sherlockian journey with us here on I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere. Thank you so much for having me. It's amazing to me to hear the story that Josh told about being so intimately connected with the work of Patrick Gowers and to actually be able to hold in his hand the musical score for so much of that very distinctive music. And it's it's odd, isn't it, when you think about it, how much attention is paid to the manuscripts of short stories and novels and to the personal memorabilia of writers, but seldom, you know, you only hear about manuscripts and discovered things when someone finds a new fragment of Mozart or something that you can associate with Beethoven. But it's not really as much of, um, of course, you know, you've got you've got the notebooks of people like Bob Dylan, and of course, and all the writings of John Lennon. So maybe it's more more popular than I thought. But I was just well, stunned by that. I think you bring up a good point because there's almost an assumption these days, uh, particularly with scores, that we have the recordings. We have the output of the work that these people put in, uh, whereas with Mozart, with uh, Beethoven, and as Tom Lehrer would say, some of that crowd, um, they, they didn't have recordings in those days. So the printed matter was really all we had. And there, there were obviously complete scores, but then, as you say, fragments, uh, lost pieces, uh, unfinished pieces, mm-hmm. right? And I think that's where this gets really interesting for Josh to take all of that material. And, and quite frankly, even some of the things that don't appear in uh, the commercially available soundtrack uh, album and to be able to find those cues. Um, and I'm, I'm just picturing him as he was telling this story. Uh, you know, putting all of this stuff inside of a large suitcase and uh, shuttling it across London. It was kind of like a, 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 a scene out of a heist film. <laughs> <laughs> you know? um, but it was uh, clearly in good hands after uh, they, they were done with it. And quite frankly, I'm excited to see what may come of it 
in the future. I think yeah. there's nothing but opportunity in front of us. Hey, it's a new year, and that means new content. Lots of new content coming from our friends at MX Publishing. Now, it doesn't have to be a new year to find new content from MX Publishing. In fact, if you sign up for their newsletter, you'll get updated every week about some of the latest. For example, every week, Steve MX sends out THIF. Thank Holmes, it's Friday. And in the most recent one, there's a news about a Kickstarter campaign, Sherlock Holmes and the unmasking of the Whitechapel horror. Then there are free audiobooks, including The Keys of Death by Gretchen Altebeff, Sherlock Holmes, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, Volume 1 by David McGregor, and The Bird and the Buddha before Watson, Book 2 by A.S. Croyle. That and Sherlock Sunday. Every week you get an update about new Sherlock Holmes books. All you have to do is go to the wessexpress.com homepage, go all the way down to the bottom, and you'll see a little box there to sign up for the newsletter where you can get information about promotions, new products, and sales. Make sure you check it out and see exactly all of the great content that's coming from our friends at MX Publishing. Everyone loves those dulcet tones because they mean there is opportunity in front of us in the form of a quiz show. That's right. It's everyone's favorite Sherlockian quiz show, Canonical Couplet, where we give you two lines of poetry and we expect you to come up with the correct answer on the other side. Now, the last time we were in these parts, we greeted you with this clue. Watson knew the man who came to Holmes quite agitated. The miscreant may rise to heights once he's been emigrated. Bert, yes. do you know, do you know yes. the name of the story that we are looking for here? Oh, I do. It's a terrific story. It's one of Sherlock Holmes' frequent interactions with secret codes. And this one is the one about the secret code that's tapped out by hopping poultry. It's the case Watson called the dancing hen. Surely you can't be serious. I am serious. And don't call me Shirley. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, almost, but not. No, no, sorry. Um, we were looking for, in this case, um, the three students. Oh, Mo, Larry, and uh, Gilchrist. <laughs> Gilchrist and Soames, yeah. They made a clean getaway. Uh, um, <laughs> what a soap opera that was. <laughs> Indeed. Well, uh, not this time around, but uh, I am looking through our, uh, our responses here. And um, you know what? I am, I'm beginning to think. No. Yeah, I'm looking through the it responses here. I'm seeing. I, I know, I know. Uh, hmm. I'm trying to see if anybody got this one. Hmm. Oh, really? Gee, I thought that was a pretty easy one. 
No, these are these are for the last one. You know, this means you'll have to send me a book. <laughs> you've stumped you've stumped everyone, Bert. Yeah. No, um, that can't that can't be. This was pretty easy. You would think. No, no one got it. Really? No one no one sent in the three students. I have lots of Greek interpreters. Really? Was from the, that was the previous one. Oh, we have one person who said the illustrious client. And um, no, all Greek interpreters have sent. Uh, you know what? I'm I'm going to go back and check the file to make sure I didn't really muck it up. Because something something is fishy here. Something's afoot here, and and in Quizland. Hmm. hmm. Um, so, well, I was going to say we could recast this one, but we already gave away the answer. Um, so, well, let's let's just let's get on with it and uh, give the clue for this episode. You wouldn't think a preposterous old hellion could fool a clever doctor like Trevelyan. If you know the answer to this episode's canonical couplet, put it in an email addressed to comment at IHearOfSherlock.com with canonical couplet in the subject line. If you are among all of the correct answers and we choose your name at random, you'll win. Good luck. Hmm. And, um... We will have a prize for you out of the iHo's vaults. So something fun, I'm sure. Uh, we have lots of stuff to choose from. Uh, I know our, our pal Tony Katroki gave us a number of uh, printed matter, uh, and we are working through those number of books and whatnot. So uh, that should be fun. Yes, pretty good. Yeah. And speaking of books, I mean, we do have a number of great authors to speak to in the coming weeks. Um, people from, oh gosh, the world of uh, the BSI Press and uh, the Christmas Annual. And uh, we have folks uh, from the theater in the future to speak with and folks from other, other musically inclined folks. So uh, lots of uh, great guests lined up here on I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere. And of course, if you have a recommendation for someone who needs more attention, needs our attention, uh, and is a, a good interview subject, then please just drop us a line at comment at IHearOfSherlock.com and let us know. We'd be delighted to hear from you. And Bert, you were recently at the 221 dinner. Yes. What's that all about? I was well every well every February twenty first. It's a it's a emerging annual event that was dreamed up by our friend Ira Matetsky. The idea that when February twenty first comes around, two twenty one, ah, it's a great opportunity for a Sherlockian dinner. Well, and as you know, anytime you can rub two Sherlockians <laughs> together is an opportunity for something for a Fire. drink, for a dinner, for a conversation, <laughs> for a flame. And we had a grand time at a uh, bistro in Manhattan near uh, near Washington Square, a uh, great old neighborhood in, in New York, and had a great time. There were about, oh, I don't know, about uh, 12, 15 of us. Great group. Oh, that's nice. That's a, What a lovely new tradition. And, of course, uh, 221, that is International Sherlock Holmes Day in the United States. Um because as you know, elsewhere it is twenty-one-two. 
<laughs> which, uh, so if you wanted to celebrate 221 Day in another, it would be January 22nd. That would be 221 Day uh, everywhere but the United States. So well, but what happens if you have a mirror and you look at your calendar backwards? <laughs> Couldn't you? Well, then you start in December. Oh, that's a great idea. <laughs> yeah, that yeah. Sounds and, very and that means you won't get to January 22nd or February 21st until, oh gosh, what we, what we normally celebrate as November or December. So there's yeah. time to plan. Yeah, that's one of these techniques that Leonardo da Vinci developed, you know, writing mirror script, writing backwards. But actually, recent scholarship has determined that the real reason he did that was so that he could never be pinned down when it came time to sign the check. You know, people said, what is this? You know, I can't make out this name. So <laughs> he never had to pay. Think of all the gnocchi he oh. ate, you know, that uh, nobody nice. got to eat. You save a lot of dough that way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, this is the always forward-looking Scott Monty. <laughs> and I'm the completely upside-down Burwalder. <laughs> and together, we say... The, the Games, games of, of Foot! foot. <laughs> <laughs> the, the Games of Foot! I'm afraid that in the pleasure of this conversation, I'm neglecting business of importance, which awaits me elsewhere. Thank you for listening. Please be sure to join us again for the next episode of I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, the first podcast dedicated to Sherlock Holmes. Goodbye, and good luck, and believe me to be my dear fellow. Very sincerely yours, Sherlock Holmes.